Let's look at God's Word. We'll read this together, and then we'll get into today's lesson. Genesis chapter 50. I'm actually going to read chapter 49, the last verse, so it's sort of a context setter. So 49.33 reads this way, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So Jacob is now passing off the scene. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many days for embalming are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, please... Let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, they lamented there with a very grievous, great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is a bit of a play on words because it can either mean uh, meadow of sorrow or sorrow of Egypt. So you may have a marginal note on that, mourning meadow or uh, mourning Egypt of the Egyptians. The word that is capable of the uh, double meaning is Mitzrayim, which is is the typical word for like a portion of land, like a, a a parcel of land or a meadow. So it could refer to where they were in this threshing floor, but it's also a double play on meaning because it's the word for Egypt. So the Canaanites saw this, recognized it was the Egyptians, but, but that this was the name of the place as well. That the, uh, It was a, a meadow of sorts. So um, it is beyond the Jordan. That's a bit of a curiosity. I, mean, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to stop here for a minute. It's a bit of a curiosity, too, because now what that means is, if you know anything about Holy Land geography, they're actually not in the, Can- in the land of Canaan at this point if they're to the east of Jordan. So you're going to notice when we keep reading that when they get done with that formal seven days there, then it says they crossed over, the family crossed over to Canaan, which was where Mamre or Hebron was and where Machpelah was. All right, so let's keep reading then. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him, here you go, to the land of Canaan. So that's from the threshing floor of Atat, which is beyond Jordan. And buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own or were brought up upon Joseph's knees. Joseph's knees. Really, among the translations that you and I might typically consent, that's always the way it's translated. ESV is alone in translating it this, that they were counted uh, to, to Joseph or, uh, there. And uh, it says then, it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. <clears throat> and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So thus the book of Genesis ends. It begins with man in the garden and ends with man in a coffin. Think about that, that's just a little interesting aside that you can play with later. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for your love and for your blessing which you have shown to us abundantly in this past week. We thank you that you have blessed us with a beautiful day outside that we can wake up to, to brisk temperatures, to sunny skies, and to uh, the kind of conditions that, that cheer our spirits. And we know, Lord, that we should have the joy of God in our hearts, whether it's raining or, or sunshine, but uh, we do thank you for these days. They're special to us. Thank you for the Lord's Day, and thank you for your people who have gathered here, even at the Sunday school hour, to, to listen in on your word. And I pray for all the classes, whether they're adult classes or beyond, below that you would just bless every teacher and give wisdom and guidance to communicate things today in such a way that people will be encouraged drawn closer to you and blessed and I pray for our class now father thank you for the privilege that we've had to study the life of Joseph I, I pray that you will bless us here as we look at this today and I, I pray Lord that you would guide me and just help me to say those things that will be helpful and profitable and uh, uh, in a warm and practical way, for I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you saw, Jacob is gone, so we come to the final performance, as it were, of Joseph. Joseph returns because Jacob is gone to what we might call center stage. And I want you to consider this, since I'm using this figure of speech, his final performance 
He returns to center stage for his final performance, and a grand performance it is. Now, may I say by way of an aside that you might be wondering, ooh, ooh, we're finishing the life of Joseph today. What are we going to do next week? Never fear. Lord willing, if you are here, and Lord willing, if I am spared, I have a bonus lesson for you. So we're going to keep on trucking with Joseph because don't for a moment think we've been able to say everything you can say about Joseph. And there would be a more, 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 but we just have one more Sunday. So please uh, don't think, well, he finished today. <laughs> don't worry about next week. Please do come. Here's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today. You see, I've titled this A True Man. And I want you to think a little bit about this that I'm presenting to you right now. Have you ever sort of noticed this? Death has an interesting, kind of an almost uncanny way of revealing things about people that heretofore we might not have known or might not have even thought. I mean, sometimes we find it out because of what the will says. <laughs> you know, and that's different than what we were thinking. And we say, well, why did they make this decision? And, it, you know, it reflects something that might have been there that just was heretofore unknown. Sometimes people have expressed certain wishes, perhaps. And, well, they're gone. Are those carried out? That tends to possibly reveal something about the people who are in charge at that point. Sometimes in final words, for example, and that's what we have in Genesis 49. You have really, for the most part that we know, most of what we would consider the last words of Jacob. And those things tend to be revealing. Many times you, you find out things that you just didn't quite realize before about people. And I, that's what I'm exploring today. What I really am interested in is as we get to this conclusion and we find Joseph's final performance, ending with his death, because 49, verse 33, Jacob dies. Chapter 50, verse 26, Joseph is gone. What are we going to see in between this? Is the death of Joseph and the death of Jacob, is this going to precipitate any insights into the life of Joseph that we find surprising? Because, folks, let me tell you, up until this point, everything that we've seen about Joseph is that he's a man of unimpeachable integrity. And let me go back and just reiterate, we're not saying by this that Joseph is not a sinner. Obviously, Joseph is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. But in the case of Joseph, the record simply just does not give us. It's like Daniel. The record simply just does not give us any insight into anything for which you might assign blame or for which you might think that there is a flaw in his character. He's, and in that sense, there's a parallel to Christ, as we've talked about before. And I think the record intentionally presents him that way, even though the intent of the record is not to suggest that he's perfect. But this is, this is the way you have to, you have to go with the, what God is presenting to you from the record, and that's a, a really interesting insight. Now the question becomes, okay, if death has an uncanny way of revealing hidden things about people? Is it going to show us anything right at the last about Joseph that we weren't anticipating or that casts mild aspersion or kind of just throws a pebble into the pond that sends out some ripples that we just, all up until this point, it's just been a smooth glass surface. Now all of a sudden something happens that sends some ripples out. And the answer to that is no. 
and I'm going to show you this today. And the reason that I've entitled this A True Man is because I want to play off of something that I think you'll recall from chapter 42, verse 11. Chapter 42, verse 11 is when Joseph's ten brothers are in his presence for the first time. They don't know. Remember? Go back to that. It's the first visit. And you remember that initially, the, the, the record tells us that Joseph recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And it says initially that he spoke harshly or roughly to them. And what did he accuse them of? Who remembers? Being spies, remember? And, and there, was, there was something all to this. I mean, we're not going to go back and rehash that. But do you remember what they said? And I'm, I'm playing off of the way the King James translates this. If you go back and look at the verse, the ESV uses honest. And I think honest is okay, but I tend to like true just a little bit better because I think true gives a little more, for us, there's a, a, a greater breadth of meaning to the word true. Um, honest, we tend to think of as, okay, they don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't have bad financial dealings. True can, can be sort of the idea of genuine, which is really what I'm after here. They said this, remember? Oh no, thy servants are not spies, thy servants are true men. Remember that? And it, they not only repeat it, but then Joseph repeats it to them. Then when they go back and they tell Jacob about this, when they return from the trip and they say, oh, he accused us of being spies and we told him we were true men. And he said, well, if you're true men, then bring your brother back, Benjamin. So at least four times in that chapter, you have a reference. These guys said they were true. These guys said they were genuine. Now, you can say, well, they were just talking about the fact that they weren't spies. Nah, I think they were kind of rep representing themselves in a bit of a broader manner. I think they were very comfortable just kind of representing themselves as something they weren't. Yes, they were not guilty of being spies, but man, oh man, were they guilty of a truckload besides that. They really weren't, but Joseph is, and that's the stark contrast that we have here. And this is a wonderful, I hope this makes an impression on you, it really speaks to me. I mean, folks, you know, you can have a life that's good, for the most part, you know, I mean, people, you know, you can mar it at the end. And you don't want to be remembered that way, and that's a huge thing. I mean, you can go through years and years of people knowing you one way and appreciating you, and perhaps honestly so, and then mar it. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, dead flies cause the apothecary's ointment to send forth a stinking savor. Well, who wants any dead flies in your ointment at the end? So this is a wonderful thing about Joseph that we're going to see here. So there's three ways to see this because there's three scenes in this final performance. And the first one is the scene with his father. Now, he has sworn an oath. Do you remember this back in chapter 47? And it's a solemn oath. I don't think we have need. I think it's close enough that you'll remember this that we don't turn. But you remember that it was really intensified in the solemnity because Jacob required of Joseph the ancient patriarchal way of solemnizing an oath. He had him put his hand under his thigh. Remember we talked about that? That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. We know that was the practice of Abraham. Don't read anything about that with Isaac, but now we do with Jacob. So this is a solemn oath. He's given his word, 
And he's not only given his word, but to that he's actually solemnized this with an oath. I guess it would be like going to court and put, putting your hand on the Bible or um, being sworn in for the presidency and telling that you're going to preserve, protect, and defend. Well, okay, we won't go there. But anyway, it, you know, it's supposed to be a little bit more solemn that way. What's he going to do? Because in reality now, and I've sort of hinted at this, Jacob is gone. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. He can do whatever he wants. And even though the brothers, if you look there at 49.29 that I gave you, even though the brothers, later in, towards the end of chapter 49, we can read this. You're right there anyway, so just look up at it. Then he, that's Jacob, commanded them, saying, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. Well, they, so, in other words, now it's not just privately with Joseph. It's with all of them, and they all assent to it. But my point is Joseph gave a private oath, and it's going to fall to him. He's going to have to be the one to issue the orders and accomplish all of this. But now, this is the second time. In private, he affirms it in an oath. In public, he assents to it. He agrees to it again. But the truth is, he can do whatever he wants. And uh, I, I don't think she'll mind if I tell you this, but because it's humorous, but it makes a point. You know, I, years ago, I don't know if it's what she still thinks or not, but my wife told me, you know, if I go first, just put me in the cheapest cardboard box you can find. I see a couple of you nodding. And we all have different feelings about this, but I always told her, if that happens, I'm sorry, that isn't going to happen. You know, I mean, it just, my thoughts run a little differently on that, and it's going to be something respectable. It's not going to be something that looks like that it doesn't represent how the Lord blessed us and how we lived. But that's another matter. That's extraneous. But it, it's, you know, at least it wouldn't be revealing a bad thing about me, would it? I hope. But Jacob, Joseph can do whatever he wants. And if he does something different, especially if he doesn't follow through with a solemn oath about which he gave his word, then it might tend to reveal a character flaw or perhaps what it is is a hidden motive. We talked about is there something hidden that death reveals. Did he give this oath in genuine love and loyalty to his father or was he thinking of the eventual blessing that we find pronounced so lavishly in chapter 49, anticipating the fact that his father would bless him. After all, he could remember Isaac blessing him when he kind of was deceitful, right? So is a lot of this done just to kind of keep Jacob happy and keep the peace and all that kind of stuff? Or is it real? Is it genuine? It's real. That's what this shows us. It's really real. Because he not only fulfills the oath to the letter, look there in chapter, five and, uh, chapter 50, verse 5 and 6, as soon as this embalming process is, whenever, you know, he, he goes to Pharaoh and he seeks the permission that he needs to do this. And I've talked to you about this before, but um, you know, this is a little different than... In, in our day where we're, we're kind of used to embalming and, 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 and we know, for example, my mom, for example, she died in Idaho. She was living with my sister at the time. 
And she's buried back here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So yeah, obviously you have to transport the body. And some people die on the mission field, you have to do that. And if, if, if they want to be brought home, this type of thing. And it's possible now because of these modern methods. But if you lived in Canaan, they didn't have that. You didn't just get out of the funeral home and make arrangements. But the Egyptians did. So that sort of made, but still, when you look at this, this is a, an, an incredible affair. I mean, this borders basically, folks, on what's a state funeral. Let me show you something that, that probably you might not notice. You might just kind of think that this is one of those things that the text just says and it's not a big deal. But there's something to it. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, And the Egyptians wept for him, how many days? Seventy. The Egyptians wept for Jacob. Seventy days. Here's the point that's interesting. The official mourning period for the death of a pharaoh was only 72. So what does this mean? It means essentially because of how highly they thought of Joseph, that they, they basically accorded to his father just about everything that you would have accorded to a pharaoh. So notice the details. When they go up to the land of Canaan, it isn't just the family that goes. It's all of Pharaoh's household, it's all of his elders, and all of the elders of Egypt. This is a huge affair, which is why the Canaanites noticed this and, and called it what they did. This is a great and grievous mourning, they said. So, we're not disappointed. He does everything he said he would do and more. And Joseph proves to be a true man. Got to keep moving. Lots to talk about there, but can't do it. What about his brothers? This is where the middle scene in the chapter is with his brothers, verses 15 to 21. So another thing is true. Jacob's gone now. Joseph can do whatever he wants with his brothers. So here's an interesting question. What is he going to do with his brothers? Well, here's what they're worried about. <laughs> what does it say? Look at verse 11, or 15 rather. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So is that kind of the kind of man that Joseph is? Is there some hidden malice that's going on here? That he's sort of kept under wraps? Perhaps he's concealed this grudge. Perhaps he's has a desire to get even, but eh, let's keep the family peace. Jacob doesn't have that long to live. Let's just keep everything copacetic. And, you know, whenever he's gone, well, we'll scattle, settle the score. <laughs> That's what they were worried about. I think what that reveals is they know themselves all too well. Sadly, they don't know Joseph as well as they perhaps should have. They know themselves. They think how they might have tended to react. And that's where Joseph is a true man. He never was like that. God's grace prevailed in his life. We're going to get to the end of this and reiterate again about how it's God's grace and about how he's not some superhuman man. He prevails because of a certain belief and faith in that belief in God's grace. We'll see this in a few moments, but 
here's an interesting thing. So in this story that they tell, you just think to yourself, and, and don't worry, I mean, you come to your own conclusion, it, it doesn't really matter to me, but there are people who think that this is a made-up story. I don't mean made up in the sense that they didn't tell it and that it shouldn't be in the record. I mean that this story is fictitious, that it never happened. They made it up. Why do people say that? And, and there's some reputable people who say that. Truthfully, I sort of lean that way. I can't prove it, and it's really not a huge deal. But why do they do this? Well, it's kind of interesting the way they handle Joseph at arm's length. You know, at before, they had complete access to Joseph, and there's no reason to believe that that had changed. Even when they were unknown to him, he invited them to his home. They'd eaten in his home. So why do they have to send a message to him? I mean, suppose, you know, that you could say, well, he was busy at the court. and ah, Don't tell me he wouldn't make room for an appointment with his brothers. So that, that one doesn't go so well. I, I tend to think that they sent a message to him. And then, do you notice how they couch this? They don't come directly and say, you know, we just want to be sure that we're, in, you know, everything's good. We know we did you wrong, and we just want to let you know. And you no, know, they say, thy father. Do you notice how they said it? it didn't say our father. It says your father. So what is this? Well, it's an effort to hide behind Jacob, who's dead. So you can argue the other way, too. I mean, you can argue that they were just scared and they did the best they could. Or some people, as I say, come to the conclusion that this is just sort of a... I, I tend to think of these guys now. This is me, okay, so you don't have to go there if you don't want to. But I tend to think of these guys as merchants of guilt. Guilt, they were guilt-ridden in the beginning because of what they had done, and we saw that back in chapter 42. And even though they were forgiven way back in chapter 45, I made the point at the time when we were going through that lesson, and I think some of us tend to struggle with this. I mean, sometimes you have things in your past and you just have, these things are serious enough that you just have a lot of problem forgiving yourself for those things. And these guys struggled with guilt. It, you know, in some ways, even though God's grace is sufficient to get us beyond those things, it, it's something of the consequences of the sins that we have committed and the choices we've made in the past, that this, is, this can sometimes be a lifelong struggle. And so now they try to transfer some of that guilt to him. Like, oh, you, you have to treat, keep treating us nice because otherwise it would defame Jacob. Well, you can think about it however you want, but I think at the very least, it tends to reveal that they're still struggling with this old guilt. And I just want to be an encouragement here, folks, to us today. I mean, you know, it's easier said than done, and it's sometimes easy preaching and hard living. But the Bible does say to us, forgetting those things which are behind. And if God tells us that he's forgotten our sins and buried them in the deepest sea, then you know what that really means is you and I have to do that too. It doesn't mean that your memory's erased. It doesn't, you know, your mind's not like a hard drive that you can just press erase and it's all gone. It means by an act of the will, you, you, you do not let that encumber you because you know God has forgiven you. Now, you don't let 
what's happened in the past rob you of the humility that it ought to bring to your life. That's really an important thing too, but you don't let it become an impediment. And we just have to keep reminding ourselves. So I think it's sad because it reveals how little they really knew of the real Joseph. Because now, when he responds to them, it's exactly how he responded 17 years before. Why do I say 17? Because when they came to Egypt, Jacob lived 17 years. So roughly speaking, that's the time when this audience occurred, when he revealed himself to them. And if you go back to chapter 45, verse 2, I think we have time to do this. Let's just do this real quick. How did this all take place before? Uh, get to the right page. 42, verse 5. Did I give you the right reference? No, it's 45. I'm sorry. Chapter 45. Yeah, verse 2. So, <laughs> Joseph says, make everyone <laughs> go out. And he wept out loud. What's it say here? He wept. As soon as he heard these words, he wept. Broke his heart. Broke his heart that they would think that of him. With reassurance, what does it say here? He recognizes immediately back in chapter 45, and I said this at the time, that their desperate need is for reassurance. So what does he do? Verse 4, he says, come near. And deals with them up close and personal. And then as far as assurance goes, and as far as forgiveness goes, you look down at chapter four, uh, verse 14 of chapter 45, and look at these, these final assurances that he gives... Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. I mean, they knew when this was over with. They knew that he had forgiven them. So what's the problem now? Well, <laughs> they're still struggling. Now I want to show you something else because we need to tie it in with where we are now. How in the world? Because I, I know maybe what I'm thinking I'll ask you the question this way. Has something ever happened in your life, the magnitude of which was such, that you were tempted or perhaps even did say, I can never forgive you for that? I'm, you don't have to answer. I'm just saying this is real life. This is hard. So how is it that Joseph has been able to do this all this time? How did he forgive them? Because he was ready to say this when they showed up. I mean, this wasn't new. He was just saying what had taken place in his heart. 17 years prior, in chapter 45, look at what he has to say. If you're still in chapter 45, verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me. Not you, but God. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. All right, let's go to chapter 50. When he has them come near again, verse 18, his brothers also fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. 
Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God. As for you, yes, you meant it for evil, but God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive or saved as they are today. So do not fear. Here's the reassurance. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Folks, when I say that we come to the final scene and a grand performance, it is. It is. Because this is the repetition of what he had said 17 years before, only here, this is perhaps the one that people know more than any other one. This is just, this is the quintessential statement of his belief in the power of God's providence. Yes, here's what that means in practice. Yes, circumstances are sometimes evil, and people are sometimes evil, but God is always good. And God is always in control. And one of the things that I've learned over the years that I just want to reiterate and say to you today is, you know, a lot of people seem to content themselves with saying, well, we know God is in control. That's not enough. Because what kind of God is God? Because if God were a God of malice or a God, you know, like people's imaginations come up with, it wouldn't be much of a comfort to say he's in control. If he's arbitrary, if he's unkind, but when you say that you believe in a beneficent God, you believe in a God who above all else is good. For the Lord is good, it says in Psalm 100, right? His mercy is everlasting, and his truth or faithfulness endures to every generation. Or you can come over to the New Testament, and we know that all things work together for good. Or you can phrase it, we know that God works all things together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. And folks, it's hard to hang on to that sometimes. Things happen and they absolutely rock our world. But this is where you come back. This is where you tie the knot on the end of the rope. And this is what you hang your hat on to. And God gives him the grace to do that. That takes God's grace. God gives him the grace to do that. But see, it's this, this vital belief. In the minute, see, this is what Satan constantly attacks because this is exactly what he attacked in the garden. Oh, did God say? Oh, no, see, the real deal is God knows that in the day you eat thereof that your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. They'd have been better off not to have known evil, wouldn't they? But what was the attack? The attack was on what we've just said, God is good. The suggestion was, no, he's come across as good. He gave you this pretty garden, gave you each other, gave you all these good gifts, but in reality, he's holding something back from you that he just doesn't want to move over. He doesn't want you to be like God. Oh, he definitely wants us to be like himself. It's exactly what he's doing in our lives, right? He's making us more like Jesus every day. So this is malarkey. This is what the devil does, and you have to recognize it for what it is and dig down deep and find God's power, but that's where you'll find it. But we've got to go.
to himself. How will he prove to be at the end? All along, we've known Joseph a certain way. And in a religious sense, we've known him as a certain way. Right? He's an Egyptian in, in the fact that he's a naturalized Egyptian. Remember back in the scene when Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian name? You know, that thing that's about 10 miles long and you have to practice to say? It ends in Pania. And he gives him an Egyptian wife who is the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, which is the I told you at the time, the highest of the priestly caste, gives him an Egyptian wife. And here's something really interesting, because what we're talking about now is the hidden man. And I want to play off of something else earlier in the record. I mean, we, we're hardly out of the starting gate. Chapter 37 is the first chapter. 38 deals with Judah. We get back on track in 39, and where do we find Joseph? We find him promoted in Potiphar's house, not to be confused with Potiphar, but Potiphar's house, the chapter of the captain of the guard. And then we run into Mrs. Potiphar. She's a piece of work. And there's problems. And what does she accuse? What does she throw as an accusation, as a slur, as a, as a term of denigration up to Joseph's face in front of the men in the house later and then to her husband? Well, here it is, verse 14. She called to the men of her house, chapter 39, verse 17, and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. Then when her husband got home, she said the same thing. She told him the story, same story, saying, That Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. Would Joseph recoil from that? I mean, here he is, he's a naturalized Egyptian, he's prime minister. I just dis distance myself from those run-down people in Canaan, those nomads. I'm, I'm big stuff now. Would he distance himself from that? After all, that had been thrown to him in the very beginning as a slur. And though, as I say, you can check those references again, he was always very careful and scrupulous about Egyptian custom. That was required of him. The man was always a Hebrew in his heart. And he was until the moment his heart stopped beating. How do I know this? Well, it had proven true before. He named his boys. Even though he was a naturalized Egyptian and even though his wife was Egyptian, he gives his boys Hebrew names. And I talked to you about that at the time. That was a reflection of his faith. It was a reflection of the upbringing that he saw to it that Manasseh and Ephraim were going to get. When he said that God has made me fruitful in the land of my toil, it was an acknowledgement of the fact that this is not really where my heart is, even though this is where I'm called to serve. It was true when he adopted, he allowed his sons to be adopted by Jacob. We saw that a week or so ago. And it's true now. How do I know it's true now? Because here's his final words. He's following his father's faith. His father made him swear to bury him in the land of Canaan. And here's the thing that's really interesting. Even though Joseph knows 
that that won't be possible now. In other words, there was no way, given his standing in Egypt, they weren't going to embalm him and carry him up there to Machpelah. No, he's, he's, he's Egyptian property. Until he wasn't. Until a pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. And until they had been in the land 430 years, you can read about it in Exodus, and you can read about it in Genesis. I didn't give you the references there. When they left, they took the bones of Joseph with them. Why did he do that? Why did he say that? Because, you know, folks, if you go back to chapter 28, 13, and I want to read this for you because this is the whole point about faith. Go back there, and... Jacob is the one who refers to this. So we're going to see it again in chapter 48, verse 4, in that reference that you see there. But when Joseph first, first meets God and has a personal encounter with God, this is the Jacob in the ladder, remember? That's the scene at, at Bethel. He names it Bethel, even though the name was Luz before, because it means the house of God. And he says here in verse 13, God says to him, And behold, the Lord stood above it. That's the, the latter. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Look at this promise. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your what? Offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Jacob kept that promise. And in chapter 48, he kept it in his heart. And when we get to chapter 48, we read verse number 4. This is still what he's saying. Verse 3, look at this. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so Joseph says, One day, you carry me up from here, bury me there. It's where my heart is, and it's where I want my bones. Because at heart, he was always a Hebrew. I mean, there came a day, if you think about this, there came a day when Moses had to make that choice. And the book of Hebrews tells us he made that choice. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And to use today's vogue word, he identified as a Hebrew. Joseph was placed in Egypt to serve. He was content with the place that God put him but his faith was always in Canaan. And we're going to close by looking at just a verse from Hebrews chapter 11, because if you were the writer, now of course we don't, we don't, we, we realize the Holy Spirit's leading. If you were the writer of, Hebrew, of Hebrews and you had to limit yourself to choice illustrations of faith about these people, you'll notice that the one that 
he chooses with reference to Joseph is this one. By faith, verse 22, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. So what are we, where do we get out of this? Because we're out of time. Instead of backing up, we need to go forward. What do we say at the conclusion of such an amazing life? Here, how about this? The real Joseph was real. That's what you see in this chapter. Whatever's revealed to him right up until the very end, it just copies and mirrors what's been true of his life. That's a great thing for people to be able to say about us, isn't it? Gracious Heavenly Father, bless us with what thoughts were from you here today. Use them for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.